This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Hello, all spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'm your host, journalist, author, researcher of weird things, Aaron Sager, is also appearing as host of the Netflix series 28 Days Haunted, and you can catch me on the Travel Channel and Discovery Plus show Paranormal Caught on Camera. My guest today is Jamie Green. She is a science writer, an essayist, an editor, a teacher, the series editor of the Best American Science and Nature Writing. She received her MFA in creative nonfiction from Columbia. I went to NYU for my master's, so I feel like we're supposed to have some sort of rivalry there, but we don't. I don't really care. (laughs) And her writing has appeared in Slate, Popular Science. The New York Times Book Review, American Theater, Catapult, and elsewhere. But her new book is The Possibility of Life, Searching for Kinship in the Cosmos. Weaving in expert interviews, cutting-edge astronomy research, philosophical inquiry, and pop culture touchstones ranging from A Wrinkle in Time to Star Trek to Arrival, The Possibility of Life explores our evolving conception of the cosmos to ask and an even deeper question, which is, what does it mean to be human? And with that said, Jamie Green, thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I've been excited to talk to you for a while. And um, we were supposed to talk before and we had to postpone that. I'm glad that we're we're here now. So, well, first off, I mean, here's the book. It's, you know, it's out now. Congratulations. Thank you. I guess just sort of, you know, this has been out for... Uh, about three weeks, right? Yeah. So how how has that experience been for you just on a personal level, seeing this baby out in the world? It's been, I mean, it's been really fun. It's also been really weird because this is like a lifelong dream come true, you know? And um, of course that doesn't go exactly the way you expect it to. And I don't mean like in terms of success, like, Oh no, it's not a New York times bestseller. Cause like nothing is a New York times bestseller. Um, I mean, 15 books at a time are, but like, you know, but just um, the sort of complexity of the feelings, like I'm an extrovert. I like attention. I like talking, but the fact that that's been hard in some ways and that like it hasn't it hasn't all felt awesome and what i've realized is that because like i usually am very happy to to receive attention but i've realized that i don't want the attention like i want the book to have the attention and and figuring that out and like figuring out why this has been feeling mixed instead of just amazing has been an interesting and kind of tricky process yeah it's it is an interesting psychology because my career background is as a journalist and I still very much associate with that, even though I've now been on the other side of being interviewed and I prefer 
talking to people, interviewing mm-hmm. people about their thing, about what they are doing. And it feels weird when it's when it is on me. So like now that you're I saw you've on your schedule, you've done a couple, um, uh, you know, kind of appearances and book openings, book signings and whatnot. It's quite peculiar when you're on the receiving end of all those questions. Well, I, I mean, well, yeah. And like I was an actor in college. I was a theater mm-hmm. major. So like being there are some writers who are like, no, I am behind the words and the words do the thing. And I'm not always like that. Like I love reading my work in front of an audience. I recorded the audiobook myself and really loved that experience. But it was like all of the congratulations on the day that the book came out actually made me feel a lot weirder than I thought they would because they were like congratulating me for doing something that I had actually mostly finished doing about a year ago. And it's like this sort of arbitrary day of celebration. And I'm like, this is lovely. I'm happy to be celebrated. But I, like, I want to hear responses to the book rather than like to the fact that I wrote it, if that makes sense. Well, what it does make sense. And what are some of the the favorite responses you've received thus far now that it is out in the world? One thing was um, one online reviewer said that they that this was going to be their new comfort read and that they never thought that a nonfiction book could be a comfort read. Like a comfort read is, you know, like your favorite cozy romance novel or something. Um, And that, I just really felt like they got it. Like they got all of the feeling that I put into the book, not just the science and the the sort of philosophical inquiry. And I really, really appreciated that because I was like, oh, I really am like connecting with people on a, on an emotional level as well. Well, when you talk about a book that is a combination of culture and philosophy and science, rather big topics. Um, yes. I'm going to let my dog go investigate this noise he's barking at. Go. Quite all right. Go. Go. It's not, it's not someone here to murder us. Okay. The Yeah, I trust me, I get it because I have a dog and I live in Brooklyn. So yep. there's all sorts of noises just happening all the time. But yeah. Um, Yes, yeah, so you're, you're talking about philosophy, you're talking about science, this big question about, you know, are we alone uh, or what if we're alone and and then pop culture as well. So this is a lot happening at once. I know it's a culmination of both your childhood fascination with the stars and with Star Trek. And then, you know, you, you, you kind of built on this from a, uh, a thesis that kept growing. Right. But mm-hmm. why take this approach of combining these specific topic areas in the book? Cause you could have just easily talked about one of those spokes. I, the original idea back when I was in grad school, so like 10 or 12 years ago at this point, was I just wanted to write a book about like the scientific search for life beyond Earth. So sort of like astrobiology and SETI, you know, sort of like the legacy of Carl Sagan, that sort of stuff. But then I did the thing that a lot of writers do where you go to the bookstore you go to the shelf where your future book might live, you know, and you like visit its future home. And there were already like four books on this topic there. And they were all written by scientists, like by astronomers. And like I said, I was an actor in college and got my master's in creative nonfiction. So like I, you know, that book already existed a lot. And what I eventually realized was like, that wasn't like, yes, I could write that book. I, you know, even though I don't have a PhD, have done lots of science writing and feel like I have a good lay of the land. But um, 
there was a different book, which was the book that was that like I specifically could write and what I could bring to it as an outsider to the field, as a writer, someone coming to it from that perspective rather than as a practitioner of the science. Um, so it sort of partly it was guided by the market and like what already existed and what niches were left to fill. But that made me realize that this wasn't just another book about, um, you know, the scientific search for life, that there were bigger questions about meaning and about, um, you know, why we look for these questions, why we look for these signs of life and the bigger questions we're trying to answer rather than just like filling in the scientific knowledge. What is life? I mean, the... We and, don't know. Yeah. That was one of the most interesting things I learned while researching the book is like there's this sort of relatively well-known ongoing conversation about how we lack a definitive definition for life. Carl Sagan wrote about this in the 70s. Even now, NASA doesn't have a definition of life. They have what's called like a working definition, um, which is tricky because they're looking for life. They're looking for signs of life. And you can't just do science with we'll know it when we see it. But um, any definition of life that we have fails at some point. Either it includes things that we know are not alive, like fire, or it excludes things that we know are alive, like you know, life that doesn't reproduce, like mules or dormant seeds. And, but, but there's an argument that it's not just that we haven't found the right definition for life, it's that defining life is the wrong way to try to understand it. So like, this comes out of philosophy and philosophy of science. And I've talked to scientists and philosophers about this, that um, we don't understand, like a definition is the wrong way to understand life because definitions are for linguistic terms. Definitions tell us what a word means. And we don't want to know what the word life means. We want to know what life fundamentally is and what laws of the universe shape it because like physics alone doesn't under, doesn't explain life. And so that's not a definition. That's a theory, like a scientific theory of life. Um, similarly, like for gravity, Understanding gravity doesn't mean defining it to say like gravity is the force that holds me to the surface of the earth. We understood gravity when Newton and then Einstein brought us to like came up with new theories of gravity eventually that it's the curvature of space time. And we don't have that kind of fundamental theoretical explanation for life and like what rules or laws are guiding all of this and what happens when matter crosses the threshold from being being ruled by the laws of physics to something else. And there are some people who say that like without that, we are sort of premature in searching for life because we don't, we're going to miss some things and we're going to be tricked by some other things that aren't really alive. We don't know what we're looking for. Um, and there are others who say we just need to have a sort of more um, open-minded approach and look for anomalies and things that are weird and use that to keep developing our understanding of what life is. Out of, nece out of necessity at this moment, it seems like this is a very human-centric search. This is life in the cosmos. We're looking for us or what is similar to us. Yeah, I mean, there are really two prongs of it. There's the search for signs of intelligence, whether that's technology. I mean, it's always by technology. We're not like finding the people um but you know whether that's 
radio signals or laser signals or, or other sort of remnants that would show that there was technologically advanced life. Then there's also the search for just biosignatures, looking for the chemical signatures of life. And that wouldn't be like us in the sense of like, that's nothing that we could communicate with. That's nothing that would make us feel less alone probably than we feel right now. But it is somewhat shaped by what we know of life on earth because this is the only example that we have and we don't know what aspects of life on earth are fundamental to life and which are just you know flukes of how it turned out here which is why we need that sort of open-minded approach that doesn't constrain too narrowly what we're looking for so that we don't miss the things that are alive but different you you pose this question i think it's towards the beginning of the book about you're not really asking the question uh, are we alone? There's there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are doing this. It's instead, what if we are not alone? Right. And the flip side of that is, what if we are? Right. And talk a little bit about how how you think about those two questions. Because is it quite lonely if the response is, yeah, this is it. We are. We are. You know, we are it. I mean. Yes, it is. Um, But I also, I I sort of temper that with the idea that if there is other intelligent life, even in our own galaxy, which is like all we really could communicate with or connect with just because of, you know, distance, um, it's very unlikely that we're going to be having like a phone call with them, you know, Um, even a nearby star is many light years away. So any signal between those stars is going to take years in each direction. So it's much less like a phone call or it's like being pen pals with someone from ancient history, you know, because if we receive a message thinking about what it's, what it would take for humanity to either come together to create a sort of unified response or people going rogue and like who gets to speak for earth, right? Like we are not going to be having a clear back and forth if we are to find a signal. We also might not find a message, but just like an artifact. And so then all we would know is that once upon a time there was someone and that might make us feel um, sort of existentially less lonely knowing that we're in the grand scheme of things, we're not alone, but practically we're probably still going to be alone no matter what. So we're not going to find company. We're just going to find context, I think. You know, some of the folks that are out there searching for, you know, signs of extraterrestrial life, they're also looking at artifacts, like to to see if there are artifacts of a past civilization. This notion of what if we found out that well, maybe we're alone now, but we didn't used to be. That That's also kind of quite sad that our potential galactic neighbors, we missed them by that much, you know, uh, and, you know, a couple million years. That's it. And, right. And, but if we find this evidence of a past civilization, that, that, that brings up some existential questions too and a lot of emotions, right? Yeah, because one of the the big questions is how long does a civilization last? You know, we are in what Carl Sagan called our technological adolescence. The idea that we very recently attained the power to like 
destroy ourselves, um, but we don't yet have the maturity to handle that well. You know, it's like the teenager who has the keys to the family car, but you don't quite trust them yet. And when Sagan was writing, that was mostly about nuclear weapons. Um, now it's also about climate change, about all sorts of ways that we might destroy ourselves. Um, and so one of the things that we would hope to learn from the context of knowing that other civilizations exist or existed is like, is there a way through this? Is this where everyone gets stuck or is there a way through? And, you know, is that what happened to that civilization that we find signs of and is gone? Or is there some sort of evidence that they got way past this and, you know, kept developing and evolving and growing for thousands, millions of years. And would that give us a kind of hope that like, we want to still be around when the next guys are just coming up? Yeah. Well, I know in the book, I mean, you very much start with the, with Star Trek and then, uh, and there's a lot of pop culture that is referenced in the book. Um, but Star Trek seems to be the thread from the beginning to the end. And mm -hmm. I love that you talk about the episode, is it the chase? at the very beginning i had yeah. i i had seen that episode i it's like i'm a star trek fan but i'm not a it's, i don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of it and yeah. so i i recalled that one when i was reading and i hadn't thought about it in a long time and it's it, it's a great i mean yes it's a narrative hack it's it's a way to describe why the actors look like you know they're all humanoids right um but how do you think that that fits in the larger scheme of the pop culture, I guess, pursuit and awareness of life out there in the cosmos? Like, why is that specific episode of Star Trek TNG, The Chase, why is that like a touch point? Yeah, so I, I actually don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek myself either. Like I grew up watching Next Generation, have rewatched a lot of it as an adult. But some of the episodes that I write in the book, like, I didn't just have at my fingertips. I, you know, did a little research and found out about them. But this one was one that I'd always remembered because it's just like such, it has such interesting implications for the entire Star Trek universe, but also is a one-off that like does not have ripples. So basically what happens in this episode is um, they discover that there are fragments of a message in the DNA of like 18 or 19 species from across the galaxy. And you have to put those fragments of the message together in order to, it turns out, project this little hologram of a, I was going to say ancient alien, like lowercase a ancient right. alien, <laughs> a long ago alien that has a message for all of the humanoid aliens saying like, you know, we basically, this was like this, the first intelligence in their area of the galaxy there was life but there was no other intelligence and so they seeded intelligence on all these different worlds where life was just beginning and put this message in the dna so that when all of these different species attained technological maturity they could find each other and would need to cooperate and of course there's not a lot of cooperation happening there's like romulans and klingons and cardassians being real jerks to each other um but yeah it's like both a retcon for why there are so many humanoid aliens on the show why they all look so similar because they don't all look like that there are some weird ones so the idea is that these aliens all share this origin um 
but it is this like wildly like meaningful discovery you know this ancient shared history which is why i think it's so funny that it just like absolutely does not matter you know like if you it like changes everything this is like bigger than copernicus and it's it's at the end either the i think the romulans are like a little friendly to picard and that's it um but i i wanted to open with that because i feel like it sets up a lot of the questions that we have both about our origins and about what's going on in sci-fi with aliens and like the sort of meaning that we look for through other aliens the sort of narrative and like production budget constraints that are on aliens and how we turn that into meaning and just like you know it's that episode is really about looking for connection and kinship and finding it with other species um and it gives us an explanation for why there is intelligence and sort of like what what we can hope for through finding other intelligent species yeah you know it seems like so pop culture and fiction can not only inspire and influence scientists but also kind of redefine how we as the readers the audience start to conceive of these things and going back you know you mentioned uh, kepler had even been writing science fiction yeah. about these very large people on the moon and i and when i read that i thought about john carter of mars and and things like that and now we have sort of less constraints on science fiction we have shows like even the orville where one of the crew members is just a gelatinous an intelligent gelatinous glob uh voiced uh, by the late great norm Macdonald. do you think that that the kind of the new pop culture and science fiction is kind of and a rival it's a very different yeah. thing but a great film is kind of redefining a little bit about the uh, the public's perception of what a alien about what life could be yeah i think so but i i think that it's been this sort of ongoing evolution sort of since about the turn of the 20th century you know looking at like war of the worlds as maybe the starting point for modern sci-fi um because there was also gelatinous blob aliens in the the blob right so the blob yeah I think that that it's really about science fiction covering this spectrum where some of it is very influenced by science. You know, War of the Worlds is coming, the idea of superior Martians is coming out of Darwin and is coming out of, you know, sort of late 1800s thoughts about how planets form, which that theory had that the outer planets coalesce before the inner planets. So you add that to Darwin and you get more time for evolution on Mars than on Earth. And that's why you have superior Martians. That's why they're always coming from Mars and not from Venus. It doesn't have to do with knowing that Mars is more hospitable than Venus. We didn't know that then. Um, so there's like some sci-fi that is trying to engage with science and some sci-fi that is using science as set dressing you know, for like adventures in space, Star Wars being the extreme of that, we're like, that has nothing to do with space science. It's like a fantasy Western set on a planet with a bunch of aliens where the idea is like, how different could we make them look? Um, and so the intelligent gelatinous blob on, is like the same thing where it's like, I don't know, how weird could it be? Without necessarily thinking about like, how would a blob 
be alive? Like what sort of complex structures do you need? But you don't always need to worry about that. And even Star Trek sometimes would try to have a scientific foundation for the ways aliens were weird and other times would be like, I don't know, it's a being of pure energy. Done, you know? Um, And so it's really just like science fiction offers a lot of different paths towards imagination and creativity. And it's sort of like lots of different prompts, you know, as a writer, like, do you want to say like, okay, what can I do with scientific constraints? Or do you want to say like, what can I do with science as the background and as the the skin and the setting? And they're just different ways of playing within the genre. Right. And I mean, with an author or creator, they're only limited by their imagination, even though their imagination is limited by the human experience, only what they know. Right. And not, you know, not knowing what they don't know. However, with scientists, it's you're having to produce results. There's data that you have to show. You have to show your work at the end of the day. Um, even though I, I do appreciate that you emphasize the curiosity at the core of science. I think sometimes we forget that science is, is a beautiful and curious thing. But do you do did you find that there was more cynicism or optimism when it came to this search throughout your interviews with scientists? I think way more optimism because you wouldn't be in this field if you thought there wasn't a chance of finding something, if you didn't think that it was an important, valuable endeavor. And so like, I wasn't interviewing people at the National Science Foundation who don't want to fund SETI. (laughs) You know, I wasn't getting the counter argument in that way. Um, I think not cynicism exactly, but something that I noticed talking to a sort of younger generation of SETI scientists that really contrasts with the first couple generations of like Carl Sagan and Jill Tarter is a much more practical mindset that like I interviewed Jill Tarter and, you know, have, have read so much of Sagan's work. Um, and the hope there was that discovering, well, A, was that we would get a message, not just proof, you know, random proof that alien life existed. Um, but there was a lot of hope about how meaningful that discovery would be. Like in contact, Sagan imagines that receiving a message from aliens basically like brings about nuclear disarmament and a huge spiritual revolution among people on earth, like people really reconsidering everything. Jill Tarter, you know, talks about how, um, and she's, she's the SETI scientist who Ellie, the main character in contact is sometimes said to be based on. I mean, she was like the only woman working in SETI at the time. So, um, probably, uh, at least the most prominent one. So she says that, you know, finding proof of life elsewhere could remind humans that could make humanity feel more unified. Like, oh, we're not so different after all, right? Whereas the younger generation of researchers working today, they're more just trying to answer a a big scientific question. And the ones I talk to don't talk as much about these sort of existential spiritual implications. They sometimes didn't think that finding a signal, you know, not a message, but just like something out there would even necessarily have much impact on human society. And that does feel not cynical, but like a little less idealistic. But then if you look at the history, it's actually kind of new, the idea that we're alone. Um, You know, like you were talking about Kepler in the centuries after Copernicus and Galileo, 
everyone just sort of assumed that once we knew there were other planets that they would have life on them because if they were made of the same stuff that earth is made of why wouldn't they have the like intrinsic force of life that was thought to be part of matter and then in the early 1900s there people thought they saw canals on mars which was a mistranslation of the italian for channels but for a while people were saying oh i see that people thought that there was a civilization on mars it 100 years ago and even up until the 70s and the viking landers people thought that there would be life on mars there were some scientists who like plausibly thought in 1970 whatever that when the viking mission landed there would be grass on mars like we just didn't know and so it's only in the last half a century or so that we've been finding more and more not proof but like scientific reasoning that shows us that we are more likely to be alone in the solar system especially in terms of intelligent life, but like humanity has had centuries on our way to modernity where we thought there was, we took for granted that there was life on other worlds. Um, so we've, we've seen what that does and the answer is not much. <laughs> so I, I don't really know what would, what would happen or what would change. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, we, we kind of touched on earlier and you talked about it in the book that we're the search is based on what we know we're looking there's so much out there and i think this kind of plays into that drake equation as well that there's so much out there that we have to kind of try to we have to start the search somewhere and yeah. looking for other places that look like our neighborhood and could support something that possibly could look like us or is built of the same stuff as us that's a good way to start so, yeah. uh, so there's that element to it so we're kind of looking for things that look like us, but culturally, how much of, of, or maybe the philosophical search is looking for someone better than us, more evolved, more moral, the grownups in the galaxy that we might look to and say, okay, we can do better. That's definitely part of it. And especially in that, like, Carl Sagan, Jill Tarter, pioneers of SETI view. I mean, you know, that's what contact is about. Um, there is a scientific rationale for that, though, because humans, humanity is like brand new into being a technological civilization, right? If you count that as when we started transmitting radio waves, it's less than 100 years, basically. If you count it at the steam engine, like maybe add a century to it. So we are a very new technological civilization. So unless all civilizations last just a century with technology, if there's anyone out there, odds are they're older than us because like, you know, we've just started. And so... It's like if you take a one-year-old into any random group of humans, most of the humans there will be older, right? So there is like that ma mathematical rationale for if there is anyone else out there, odds are they're more advanced than we are. Um, 
so it's not just idealistic, but there is definitely this wish to be saved, to be given technology or inspiration that will help us move through what we see as like a pretty rough moment for humanity, you know, where we're doing bad stuff to the planet, where the planet's going to be fine, but we're not. And there's so much war and poverty and inequality. Like, wouldn't it be great if someone just handed us a roadmap to advancement or to enlightenment, whether that's, um, you know, a, a, you know, perfect energy generation, like an infinite source of energy or a philosophical, I don't know, convince everyone uh, that no one should go hungry, right? But, and you see this in sci-fi too, that, um, you know, even going back to the first modern sci-fi, I read about War of the Worlds where we're being conquered by these superior Martians in an explicit sort of, I don't want to say homage, um, it's explicitly in conversation with the colonization of Africa, right? Where it's like, white Europeans and Americans think of ourselves as superior and go mess things up for other people. How would you like that to happen to you is like basically the premise. But at the same time, there was um, another like major work of advanced Martian sci-fi was um, Alps Planeten, which is in the, the book, like the title is in German, but basically there, the advanced Martians are like culturally advanced. They're sort of a little more Vulcan, you know, they've, they've transcended hot-headed emotion and are philosophically advanced um, and are trying to bring humans up to that level. And as for whether that's like voluntary, that's, that's a question. Um, so, you know, that's, that's as old as modern sci-fi, the idea that someone might come save us from ourselves, um, help pull us up the ladder, or even, you know, just by their existence, inspire us to better ourselves. But, you know, when we say like, oh, if we find out that there's life elsewhere, that might um, inspire humanity to come together and get our act together. It's like, we know that we're doing bad. We know that um, there are things we need to do. And we do have technological and like political roadmaps for that. We just haven't implemented them. So I'm a little, I feel like that's just sort of passing the buck, you know? And um, I do think we need to take responsibility, but cause also I don't think we're about to have super advanced aliens come down and be like, mm, you've been naughty. Would you like to better yourselves? So these are, these are nice stories and imagining advanced aliens is a way of like imagining possible futures for earth. And so if we say like, like that's what a lot of Star Trek is. We forget often because most of the scenes take place in space that earth is post-poverty, post-war, socialist utopia, right? Like I'm pretty sure they've gotten rid of money. Not totally, but like things are chill on earth. And that was part of Gene Roddenberry's message that like this could be the future and the future could be about exploration and discovery and connection in space if we deal with our stuff at, at home first. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, lots of those, whether it's aliens or the future of Earth, these are also ways of testing out possibilities and seeing what seems inspiring or what seems frightening. Yeah, I, so I, I want to be in the camp of star trek and believe that we will get there but even they operate with the prime directive that they if they were to see us they would not be able to 
interact because nope. we just we don't have our act together. We're we're not ready for it. Right. We have to like find our own path. Yeah. And the flip side now, you mentioned H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, like that that was not just uh an old piece of sci-fi. I mean, that's very much the Stephen Hawking kind of philosophy towards life out there that, yeah, there might be, but we probably don't want to encounter it. Cause if it's anything like us, uh, even if it's advanced, it might have that conqueror attitude and, uh, and it didn't work out so well for indigenous people in, in other countries that met colonizers. Yeah. Do you find yourself, more of the romantic Sagan where you want to believe in the brighter future or the somewhat cautious Hawking? I think, and I don't think this is necessarily idealistic, but I do think that um, if a civilization is going to make it much past the point where we are on Earth right now, I do think that they have to figure out um, how to not kill themselves. <laughs> like, uh, even, like, even in terms of climate, like, uh, an, a developing, developing more and more technology and more and more resource use has an impact on your planet. And whether it's greenhouse gases or something else, you have to figure out how to live sustainably. And I know that that's become like a, an almost meaningless word, but really like you have to figure out how to keep how to sustain your civilization and sustain the environment at the same time. And so I am hopeful that um, long longevity in a civilization may go along with, um, you know, that sort of enlightenment, getting your act together. Um, and as for that Hawking comment, which like I discovered in my research was like a real off the cuff aside. He was not like, dear earth, here is a concern. I think like someone asked him and he just, he was like, eh. Um, he was cautioning against sending signals out into space saying, hello, we're here. We'd like to meet you. And I think that if anyone is powerful enough to travel across the stars and conquer us, they already know that we're here. You know, that is a really advanced level of technology. But at the same time, why would they need us? Like there are so many planets in the, in the galaxy. Um, are they just that mean? That's a tremendous, uh, you know, expense technologically in terms of fuel, in like, just to, I don't know. Look, part of the point of my book is that we can't imagine our way into every alien psyche because they will very likely be incomprehensible to us. But what, so what I was about to fall into and what Hawking is doing is really just projecting different human mindsets onto aliens. You know, they're going to be generous. They're going to be sort of godlike or angelic and come in to enlighten us. Or they're going to be conquerors, just like lots of humans have been. You know, it's very possible that they have a completely different, you know, mindset and worldview that isn't just analogous to different yeah. points in human history consciousness so like, exactly you know. exactly they're they're not necessarily going to be just like other versions of us yeah again we're limited by our imagination as limitless as it seems it's still exactly do you now you're a mother of a four-year-old yes today's his birthday oh, <laughs> well, happy birthday to him and 
the how has motherhood going from like being a little girl looking through a telescope in Queens and watching Star Trek with your dad and now being, you know, and then being a science uh, writer and now being this author about the possibility of life. How, how, how have your thoughts and everything shifted with being a mom, being a little one that may not be ready to ask about what's out there yet, but it's probably not too far off a couple of years. He's, he's started. I mean, I'm obviously, you know, pushing it. <laughs> you know, um, I remember one of his first, I remember how exciting it was when he had just started talking that he pointed at the moon and said moon. And that was really exciting. And, you know, this past winter, um, Venus and Jupiter and Saturn were super bright in the sky. So, and, and like right after sunset, so we would get home from daycare, I'd be taking him out of the car and it's like right over our neighbor's house. And, you know, I, so I have been pointing them out and it's really amazing to try to explain to a three-year-old that there are other planets and that they are worlds like ours and how far away they are. Um, and he actually, he has a little like um, sort of mobile of the planets hanging over his bed. And so explaining which but like explaining that we live on a planet like watching him start to encounter these really incomprehensible ideas you know thinking about this is a globe and what's on the other side of it and like where is that globe and what is the sun and just like look sort of like all these things that he takes for granted is just being there then learning that there's more to know about it um and a few months ago i have on my desk a little, or I had a little, um, I don't know if it's a matchbox or a Hot Wheels car, which for him is a very important distinction of uh, one of the Mars rovers that my husband had given me at some point. And um, he saw it. How could I have a matchbox car on my desk? He has many matchbox cars in the playroom. Um, and so I let him play with it. And I said, um, do you want to play Mars? And he has like a little box of kinetic sand. And, so, and then I was explaining what the rover is and that it's on Mars. He got so sad because the rover is alone because he found out that the rovers don't come back. <laughs> and it was like a really awful bedtime that night. Um, but just like seeing it all through his eyes, figuring out how to explain it in the simplest, simplest terms, seeing what connects with him, what he is able to understand and not yet um, is just, it's really lovely because it's like getting back to that fundamental wonder of like, you see that? That's a planet. Just like this one, there's another one. How cool is that? And we sent a robot there and it's there. Sounds like you um, you need to do the possibility of life. Cosmology for kids. The, he actually, know. he has a couple of books that, that, he has one especially that is like basically my book in board book form, um, except they get the Drake equation wrong. And I'm like, hmm. Like they, they describe it wrong, but it's like he has a book, a kid's book, a baby book with the Drake equation in it. <laughs> so he definitely he's getting he'll he'll get there. I was going to say that book probably has more pictures, but I do know that you do your own illustrations. In this I do. Book. <laughs> <laughs> so. And and I I am not a visual artist or an illustrator is the funny part about it and is why I'm laughing like this, because also yeah. So oh, the best one. Yeah. So, so basically like it's, it's been amazing to see how many people 
have mentioned that when they are talking about the book or really responded to that. And I think it's, I mean, it means that I succeeded with those illustrations because what I wanted it to be was just like feeling like I'm sitting next to you at a bar, we're talking. And then when I'm trying to explain something, I just grab a napkin and draw a little, a little sketch. Um, It started with the first one I did that made me think, oh, should I put that in the book was the drawing of um, the the sort of light output of a star and when that line of brightness dips that's how we can find a planet when the planet goes between us and the star and dims its light a little um and then i realized that there were other opportunities to just add a little illustration you know showing the difference between dna and rna or a carbon atom or silicon atom or a sentence diagram which is in the the chapter on language um but then the one there's a what you held up to the camera is um, when I'm talking about avatar and evolution. Um, so all of the sort of animals in avatar have six legs, you know, the horse equivalents, the wolf, the dire horse, whatever. Um, but the humanoid characters have four limbs, which doesn't really make sense evolutionarily, right? It seems like one of those um, capitulations to like, we don't want them to look too weird. They still got to be kind of hot. Um, and like makes it harder for the mocap and everything. But so then how do you explain that? Well, James Cameron, in in all his thoughtfulness, um, in just like a split second in the background, there's like the equivalent of a monkey climbing through the trees. And it doesn't have six limbs like the other animals. And it doesn't have four limbs like the humanoids. It's top, it's like, top and middle limbs have started to fuse. So it has six hands, but like a shoulder and legs with hips, sort of like we would. But that's really hard to explain in words. Um, so I drew it very badly. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was one of those things where it just really tickles me because I was like, yeah, maybe I can put in a couple of drawings. And I kind of kept waiting for my editor to be like, uh, maybe not that one. And, <laughs> and yet... <laughs> We have, we have a little budget. We can just hire someone if you'd like. <laughs> so they did actually have um, an in-house designer clean up some of the illustrations because like I can't draw a circle, you know, and with planets and orbits and atoms, there are a lot of circles. Um, but so they cleaned up some of that stuff. But and I think they they made that little avatar monkey. Um, they cleaned up his symmetry. Like, I think they just kind of folded it over itself. But like a lot of that is still my uh non-expert illustrations well i i think it actually it it kind of humanizes you know it's already a very accessible and approachable book even though it's dealing with very big topics it's it's very easy to read and get into and that is definitely a strength of the book now but as we're wrapping up i just have a couple other questions because this is not a ufo book this is not a book about ufos but i do want to ask like you know we are seeing this conversation in public not just in fringe circles but in public congressional hearings about life out there now it's also about technology that's unidentified that might be foreign powers and things like that but it, this is the stuff of New York Times, uh, you know, headlines, front page. Have you kind of taken stock of how that's impacting this 
topic that you cover in the book as if you were going to do a another uh a chapter how would this play into it um the the way i look at it is like there's something unknown and unexplained going on you know that is being witnessed by pilots and picked up by their um their sensors and then we have this cultural story about aliens that we fill in the blanks with um sort of like a rorschach test or the way that our eyes work you know that like you have a blind spot right in the front of your vision where your nerve connects to your retina or something but your brain does a very good job of filling it in um, or that you don't notice when you blink you know and so we're doing a similar thing where we have this big unknown and we're filling it in with what's familiar not factually but culturally that we have you know over half a century of this story and i don't mean story as fiction or as fact but i mean the story that we tell um so that's that's what it is to me um you know following the cues of the scientists who i whose work i keep up with no astrobiologist or seti scientist is engaging with this because it's really separate. This is like you said, I think of it as a technological phenomenon, as a political phenomenon, as a question of knowns and unknowns and probably some secrets being kept. But like, is it either American or foreign technology that we don't know about? Or is it aliens? Like kind of an Occam's razor because we haven't seen any evidence that it's aliens, we just, don't have an answer for what it is. And so that's a way of, of filling in the picture. Culturally, it is especially fascinating to me because it's people are, because it is being represented in a somewhat fierce, uh, in serious fashion or increasingly so in media outlets. And it's become this topic of conversation. So there is the actual, the, the, the filings and the findings and the hearings and everything. And then there's the, the conversation that's happening the but it's also it is not necessarily astrobiology but you have like avi Loeb at harvard looking at looking for these kinds of things through his study is there any who are some of the scientists that are asking these questions that you would like to shout out as far as like you know, there's some people that you think are doing good work. In terms of like SETI and astrobiology, you mean? Sure, sure. Okay, because because like I said, um, none of the astrobiologists and SETI people who I think are the leaders in the field and the most, um, the people whose point of view I really trust are, are bringing aliens into the conversation in terms of either, you know, the... Um, the hearings and the sightings or things that have gone through the solar system. Um, because I, th I think that coming to aliens as a first answer is really dangerous um, in terms of doing bad science and in terms of misleading the public. Because the public, because we are raised on sci-fi and we're raised on UFO stories and because we want there to be other life so strongly we are quick to fill that in. Um, and I think it's like 
in terms of scientific validity and also just kind of like ethically, very important for scientists to communicate very clearly with the press and um, with the public and just sort of make clear like what is imaginatively interesting and what has any basis in science. Um, so some of the folks, and these are the people who I talked to in the book, um, Jason Wright is a fantastic SETI researcher out of Penn State who's done a lot of really interesting work in terms of looking for evidence of alien technology um, in a really open-minded and, and innovative way. Um, I really love the work of um, David Kipping, who's an astronomer at Columbia, who is looking for exomoons, so moons around exoplanets. Um, Caleb Scharf is another astrobiologist who in a lot of ways was my mentor. Like he let me into his undergrad astrobiology class when I was getting my MFA, even though I couldn't do enough calculus to do the problem sets. Um, and, and so he's, he's been a really important resource for me individually, but I think he has a great perspective on, um, he's not afraid to write, you know, articles for Scientific American or Slate that are imaginative and whimsical, but still really rooted in the rigor of science. Um, so yeah, those are just a couple people off the top of my head who not only are doing great work, but like talk about it on Twitter. So there's this opportunity for a lay person to follow things through their eyes. Um, David Kipping also has a really great YouTube channel. So that's, that's another opportunity. And finally, end of the book. Um, where, where are you at now today? Are you, is it might be life, might not be life, or just for you personally, doesn't really, doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, that's something I write about in the book that early on in my research, I talked to, um, an astrobiologist from university of, he's from Arecibo named Abel Mendez who started as an astrophysicist and then got into astrobiology. And I asked him, like I asked every scientist in the book, like, what do you think? Which is what you don't have to put it in a journal article, but what do you think is out there? And he's like, I don't know. I don't really care. I was like, what? And he said that the more he learned, the less he actually cared about what's out there because he came to appreciate life on earth so much more. And then I was really surprised that I kind of went on the same journey that, um, I do think that at least simple life like bacteria is probably really common just because that kind of life started on earth so quickly. So like it took very few rolls of the dice to get the right combination there. Beyond that, I don't know, but like you were saying, I don't care as much because in writing the book and learning so much about how life on earth works, I've come to feel a lot more connected to all the life here and like going back to what we were saying about being really lonely if there's not life on other worlds i don't feel as lonely anymore right and we have a we have a lot of life that we need to be tending to right here on this planet too exactly. yeah so well uh my guest is jamie green thank you jamie for joining me and yeah of course the book is the possibility of life it is out now science imagination and our quest for kinship in the cosmos which has a slightly different title in the uk doesn't it yes. it's just searching for kin kinship in the cosmos right yep different subtitle different cover same book on the inside okay yes <laughs> and and as far as the book itself it is 
really accessible. Don't approach this as if you have to read this giant size science book that's intimidating. Instead, this is very approachable and filled with a lot of pop culture as well. So, Jamie, thank you so much and just best of luck with this. And I hope that we get a chance to talk to one another again and maybe even if you pop down to New York City. Thank you so much. This has been Talking Strange. I'm Aaron Sagers. If you had stories you'd like to share, the strange, the unusual about the quest for life out there, hit us up. Email us at talkingstrange at denofgeek.com. Until next time, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon for more paranormal pop culture content.